because only if there is a good God behind this universe do you have any reason to expect it to be good or to call something's good and something's evil. Do please take a seat. And uh, can I say thanks for coming if you're here through an invitation, uh, especially if you're here for the first time. Um, the story's told of a boy who was in church with his dad for the first time. And he saw these names on the wall and he turned and whispered to his dad, what are those names? And his dad said, they're the people who died in the services. And with wide eyes, the boy said, what, the evening services or the morning services? Um, can I assure you, uh, we have, as far as I know, a 100% rate of people surviving our services and our barbecues. Um, and these invitation services are geared especially for people who are just thinking through what they believe. Tonight's is on a question that many find the biggest barrier between them and believing in God, and that is the question, how can you believe in a God who allows suffering? Because many would say and have said to me, look, I see all the suffering in the world and my conclusion is there can't be a God. But actually the way we react to suffering points to the opposite conclusion. Because what has been your reaction, for example, to the story of these women in America who've been held hostage and abused for nine or ten years? or to the daily news from Syria, or to hearing that a friend's child has leukemia, or to walking past a severely disabled person in a wheelchair. If you're like me, isn't your deep-seated reaction to feel this is not the way things ought to be? And the question which actually brought C.S. Lewis to faith is where does that ought come from? Because if you believe there is no God and we are just here by chance, then you have no reason to expect things to be any different than in fact they are. You just have to accept that evolution is the random and nasty business of natural selection and the survival of the fittest. And you have no reason to say that some things ought to happen and some things ought not to. Because only if there is a good God behind this universe do you have any reason to expect it to be good or to call something's good and something's evil? So if you're looking at suffering and saying there can't be a God, you haven't solved your intellectual problem like maybe you thought you had. Because your big intellectual problem is that you can't call anything evil. Not terrorism, not a fatal earthquake, not the hurt that has been done to you by friends and family, not cancer. But I guess you do think, you do feel those things are evil and ought not to be. And to the extent that you do feel that, that's pointing the other way. It's pointing to a good God who stands behind that ought. But back to us, what about the Christians' problem? How do the Christians answer this question? I want to let tonight's readings from John's Gospel answer it, so I wonder if you'd turn back in the Bibles to page 897. 
page 897, and that will get you to John's Gospel, chapter 11. John's Gospel, chapter 11, on page 897. Um, if you've ever been here for Carols by Candlelight, you'll have heard the, uh, the classic Christmas reading from John, chapter 1, where he talks about the Word become flesh. He lays his cards firmly on the table, and he says, Jesus was and is the Son of God who became human. He says in his Gospel, I've seen the evidence for that and written it down. Here it is. One piece of it is this incident in chapter 11, where Jesus brought a dead man back to life, according to John. The background is that Lazarus had fallen ill, so his sisters Mary and Martha had sent for Jesus. By the time Jesus arrived, Lazarus was dead. Now pick it up at John chapter 11 and verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The previous vicar that I worked with, Mark Ashton, died young of cancer three years ago. And in his final months, he wrote this booklet called On My Way to Heaven. Here's one thing that he said. It will be leaving people that will hurt most at death. There is no question about the savagery of death in this regard. There is no more devastating a barrier in all of human experience than that between the living and the dead. The soft soap and wishful thinking peddled by false prophets in the face of death, that the loved one is just in the next room, that he's always looking down on us, that she'll be invisibly present at every family gathering, gathering are iniquitous because they fly in the face of all human experience of death. So here, so says John, is the Son of God stepping into the most devastating situation of suffering. I want to say four quick things from this about how Christians believe in God in the midst of that. The first is this, and these points are on the back of your service sheet if you want to follow them. The first thing I want to say is we believe in God because of Jesus, not because everything is good. Some people think we believe in God because we, we look around the world and we conclude that he really must be there. And, and many things do point to his existence. So a friend in this congregation uh, says that she came to faith through the birth of her first child. She was so overwhelmed by this gift of new life and she started thinking, gift from whom? And yet there are many things that seem equally to point to his non-existence. So there are friends in this congregation who've been heartbroken by the stillbirth of their first child. If you just look at the world around, the evidence for God is too ambiguous to back belief either way. So the first thing I want to say is, we Christians believe in God because of Jesus. So if you'd like to believe in God, the place to look is in the four gospel accounts of his life, his death, and his resurrection from the dead. That's why we're looking at one of them tonight, because John is saying, look, this man really lived. If you'd been there 2,000 years ago, you could have heard and seen the evidence that unmistakably points to his being the Son of God become human. That's, that's what he's saying in his gospel. 
Now, it was only after Jesus died on the cross and rose again that these first followers came to full-blown faith in him. But even here, they're well on their way. For example, if you look at John chapter 11, verse 27, chapter 11, verse 27, Martha said to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. So how does she handle the fact that her brother's just died? Well, look back to verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. In other words, I still believe you're powerful enough and good enough to have stopped him dying, which leaves me with the mystery of why you didn't. Why did he get sick in the first place? Why didn't you come sooner? Why didn't you heal him at a distance like you did with other people? I don't understand why. And that is what Christians often have to say. That is all they can say about the reason for suffering. We don't have all the answers. All we can say is we do believe in God because of Jesus. We believe he's loving because of his death to see us forgiven. We believe he's powerful because he rose from the dead. We believe he's therefore in control of everything. And the fact of suffering doesn't change the truths that I've just run past you. Uh, the fact of suffering sits alongside them and we often feel the tension of those. So that's the first thing to say. We believe in God because of Jesus, not because everything is good. The second thing to say is we believe that suffering is linked with human wrongdoing. Look down again to verse 23, if you would. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Just need to explain what she means by that. Martha was a Jew, um, like Brian, in fact, who read that first reading. Martha was a Jew, so she believed the Old Testament, that was her Bible, and the Old Testament says that God created this universe and created us to live in relationship with him. But the Old Testament then says the first human pair rejected relationship with God. They basically said to him, you know, we want to run our own lives our own way. We can live without you. And as a result, that by nature is the attitude that we all have to God. And that in itself causes vast amounts of suffering, including suffering that we've experienced. Because if I'm going around saying, I want to run my life my own way, and you're going around saying, I want to run my life my own way, what is going to happen when we meet? It is a recipe for conflict. It's a recipe for the abuse and, and using of other people and for the hurting of other people. Now we've all been on the receiving end of that. We've all been on the giving end of that as well. We have all contributed to the problem of suffering and almost certainly far more than we realize. And God, yes, is responsible for allowing us the freedom to do that, but we are responsible for that kind of suffering. We are to blame. But then what about the different kind of suffering which is not inflicted by human on human? What about the child with leukemia or the person in the wheelchair or the fatal earthquake or the cancer in your family or the stillbirth or the decline and indignity of old age? Everything that is part of our mortality. 
Well, the Old Testament said those things happen because God has imposed mortality on us as a blanket judgment for our rejection of him. I know that sounds um, appallingly hard, probably, if you're new to all this. But when we say to God, we, we can live without you, we are actually uttering the, the biggest and most offensive lie there is because the truth is we depend on God moment by moment for every breath we take. Anything good you've enjoyed in life, you've enjoyed from God. So when we say we can live without you, we are just denying the reality that we owe him everything. Our thanks, our trust, our obedience. And the Bible says mortality is this blanket judgment that God has imposed on us for backing this lie to his face that actually we can live without him. And I know it sounds hard to say, but the brute fact of death is designed to bring it home to us that we can't, that we can't even keep ourselves physically alive. So the Bible is saying some suffering is inflicted by human on human. It's saying our mortality is imposed by God. And because that does sound so hard, let me say three quick things before moving on. First of all, the offense of accepting from God all his gifts, but actually saying to him, the giver, I don't want you, is so great. It shouldn't surprise us that the corresponding judgment is so great and so clearly and painfully reminds us that we are just dependent creatures. We're on life support. Second, mortality is a mercy as well as, a, as well as a judgment because it limits the time that we have in order to do wrong against God and against others. So if President Assad of Syria cannot be got rid of, if he manages to go on and on and on like Mugabe, there is mercy in the fact that he can't go on forever. Death will intervene, even if the UN and no one else can, and then he'll face God's justice. But you have to add, as we all will. And thirdly, mortality is a mercy because God wants it to use it to bring us to our senses and ask why is the world not the way that we feel that it ought to be? And to lead us to the conclusion it's because we've rejected him. So he means our mortality to turn us back to him in this life so that we can then be with him in the next life beyond death. And that's what Martha's on about in verse 24 when she says she thinks her brother is going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now that leads on to the third thing to say from this bit of the Bible, which is we Christians believe that Jesus died and rose again to see us finally freed from suffering. Just look down to verse 23 again. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again, by which he means, I am about to go and pull him out of his tomb today. She thinks he's just reassuring her in a general way that Lazarus will ultimately enjoy life beyond death. So verse 24, she says to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So she's right to believe there's a life beyond death to enjoy for everyone who turns back to God. But Jesus is saying to her, now you need to understand that I am the key 
to you getting there, to getting into relationship with God and staying in relationship with God uh, into eternity. My brother and I used to play that trick where you balance something on a, a door and then you try and lure your victim, i.e. your brother, through so that it falls on him. He once got me with a bucket of water. I once got with him, him with our junior encyclopedia, which didn't leave so much wet carpet to explain. But the thing about that trick is that once someone has been through the door and whatever it is has fallen, it's totally safe for anyone else to come through. I want you to imagine that life is like a room and we are all heading towards the door of death at the far end of it. I want you to imagine is, is that on top of that door is the book of everything you've ever done wrong against God and against others that ought to fall on you as a judgment at the end of the day. The way that Jesus explained it was that when he died on the cross, he was going through the door of death on our behalf, in front of us, to have the book fall on him. Imagine every book representing every person falling on him. So that we can go through the door safely, we can be forgiven now back into relationship with God, we can go through that door of death without any fear to a place where there will be no more suffering. And that's why the third thing to say is that we Christians believe Jesus died and rose to see us finally freed from suffering. So I do not, I cannot give you an answer to suffering in the sense of, here's an explanation of why God allowed it in the first place. You won't find that in the Bible. I can give you an answer to suffering in the sense that we know that he will ultimately bring it to an end for those who have turned to him. And that makes all the difference in the world to how you face it now. So let me uh, read you something else from Mark Ashton's little booklet. In the spring of 2007, and I went to visit him shortly after this, I first had pains in my gallbladder, which led eventually to going into hospital to have the gallbladder removed. But the surgeon found cancer, which had invaded the liver. It was past surgical solution and radiotherapy and chemotherapy. The oncologist estimated that I might have six to nine months to live. I said to the surgeon when he broke the news that what he had just told me was for the Christian not bad news but good news, not the end of the story but the beginning of it. And I saw an imaginary speech bubble appear above his head saying, this man is in total denial. But that is what a Christian can say, that death is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the eternal chapter of it when we will finally be free from suffering. But what about meantime, when Christian believers are no more immune from suffering than anyone else? Well, the fourth and final thing to say is we believe Jesus can be trusted even in suffering. Dave has spoken so remarkably about that earlier that anything that I can say is really just a come down, but I will plow on with the come down for my last few minutes anyway. Let me read a bit more from Mark's booklet. I've lived 62 years of very happy life on the earth, and for over 40 of them, Jesus has been my Lord and my Savior. My main reaction was then and remains now one of gratitude. God has done all things well, and I believe he is doing this thing well as well as he takes me back to himself. How can you say that when your life is being cut short by cancer at 62? Because most people, in my experience, take suffering to mean that God has turned 
against them. Someone was t telling me their experience just the other day and then rounded on me and said, so what has the man upstairs got against me if he's there? Why didn't Mark Ashton ask that? Well, because he was convinced that Jesus was the Son of God become human and what he showed himself to be like back there 2,000 years ago, which John has written up for us, is what he's still like because he doesn't change. So look down to verse 32 just for a last glance at this incident. Verse 32 of John chapter 11, over the page. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing. The sisters had been saying that to one another for the last 48 hours. Why, why, why? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, John originally wrote this in Greek. The bit translated was deeply moved, literally said was angry, but no Bible translation has the guts to tell it as it is. I suppose for fear that it'll be misinterpreted. But of course, you have to interpret everything. The only way to interpret that that makes sense is that Jesus was angry not with the people that he loved, but with the situation of death and all the grief that it brings. I was in the park the other day with my daughters, and one of them was climbing uh, on a climbing frame and along with another little girl who I didn't know, and then this pretty rough boy came and started climbing up it and blatantly kicking and knocking uh, both these little girls. And while I was still trying to collect my thoughts for what to do, the dad of the other little girl waded in, in a frank and Geordie manner, using, <laughs> using rugged and Elizabethan language, um, and gave this guy a piece of his mind that he will probably be able to remember word for word and tell his grandchildren. Um, as I watched, I don't think that dad did anything out of order. He was keeping in himself in control, but he was shaking with anger, which, of course, was the flip side of his love for his daughter. And Jesus' anger here is the flip side of his love for us. It's this extraordinary paradox that as God, he knows he is the one with his Father who has imposed this blanket judgment of mortality on us as a necessary judgment. But does that mean he takes any pleasure in it? No. Does that mean he's against us? No, he's, he's come underneath it as one of us to show that he's for us and loves us which explains his anger at this situation of us rejecting him and bringing ourselves under his judgment, which is precisely the situation he wants to get us out of. Just like the father in the park wanted to get his daughter out of that situation. And Mark Ashton knew that. He knew that although we live under this blanket judgment of mortality, it doesn't mean that God is against us. He's against our rejection of, our, of him. But he's not against us. He's for us, he wants to turn us around, he wants to bring us out from under that blanket in relationship with him. Jesus has shown that, he's also shown that he feels for us in whatever we go through. So just look on to verse 34. And Jesus said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus wept. 
If you're just looking into all this, I want to say, we, at least in this church, we really do believe that God became human, fully human. He's been inside the human experience, and that makes all the difference to how we face suffering. Because, for example, the person whose parent or spouse has walked out of them knows that Jesus knows what it is to be betrayed. The person on the receiving end of some thoroughly unjust treatment knows that Jesus knows all about innocent suffering. The person in pain knows that Jesus knows all about pain. The person who is dying knows that Jesus knows all about dying. It doesn't solve our intellectual problems, but boy does it help us trust him even in suffering. Not that we ever do that perfectly, but to the extent that we trust Jesus, it brings us a comfort that no other person or belief can. At least if you know something better, let me know on the door. So that's something of an answer to the question, how can you believe in a God who allows suffering? But of course, it is all empty comfort unless the Christian message is true. And if you're still thinking through what you believe, that's what you've got to make your mind up about. So let me read from verse 38 to close. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he'd said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. If that really happened, and all the other things in the Gospels along with it, if Jesus really said these things and did these things and ultimately himself rose from the dead, then you not only have the best answer to suffering that you'll ever find, you have the best answers to everything that you'll ever find. Let's pray. <clears throat> Risen Lord Jesus, there is so much in our experience that we do not understand. But even if we don't yet believe it, we understand this claim that you were the Son of God become human and died to put us right with you and rose again. And we understand that if that's all true, then we're not just talking into thin air right now, but talking to someone who wants us to know him. So Lord Jesus, those of us who don't believe in you but would like to, or at least think we cannot rule this out. We ask that you would bring us to faith in you and show us what we need to do to be brought to faith. And those of us who do believe, pray that you would sustain our faith through whatever you take us through between now and when we finally see you beyond all suffering and beyond all questions. For Jesus' sake, amen. <clears throat>